Right, so Esther, uh, as you know, as Ben said, Family Sunday, and um, I chose a topic that's um, pertinent to the young ones. I hope, I was hoping there'd be a few more teenagers, but anyway, we've got what we've got. Um, Esther, from my reading, um, and it's, the records are not entirely accurate, was supposed to be a teenager when she um, became the queen of Persia. Uh, and I thought that was pertinent in uh, choosing Esther. The other reason I chose Esther is I have a Queen Esther in my life. Uh, Smitha's middle name is Esther, and she's my queen. So I thought, Esther, it is. Anyway, um, Josh, I'm glad you're here. Um, I had to put one Charlie Brown peanut strip for you. Um, you know, Lucy asked Charlie Brown as they were walking together, why do you think we are put here on this earth, Charlie Brown? To which he gave a simplistic answer. He said, to make others happy. And Lucy stopped and reflected, I don't think I'm making anyone happy. And of course, no one's making me happy either. Somebody's not doing his or her job. At home, she sought the opinion of her brother Linus, who was busy sucking his thumb and tugging his blanket. And she said, Charlie Brown says we're put here on earth to make others happy. The surprised Linus said, is that why we're here? Well, I guess I better be doing a good job then. I hate to be shipped back. <laughs> Going nowhere, the exasperated Lucy went back to Charlie Brown to check if things have changed. I'm intrigued by this view you have on the purpose of life, she said. Are you sure we're here to make others happy on earth? And Charlie Brown affirmed, that's right. The disgruntled Lucy finally raised the question that really bothered her. And what are others put here for? <laughs> it's interesting, this book on Esther, it's about eight or nine chapters, but it's not until the midway point, chapter four, that Esther really realizes why she was put here on this earth. Let's go into the history a little bit. Esther follows Nehemiah in the Bible, but chronologically, Esther is actually 30 years before Nehemiah. Um, it's an interesting book. God is not mentioned at all in the book. But his providential care for his people is nowhere more evident than in the book of Esther. It's amazing. Um, you see, Esther, the, the book of Esther talks of simple people, ordinary people, Esther and Mordecai. And like Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon, God uses ordinary people to fulfill his purpose. In those days, the superpowers of the world were the Persians. They took over from the Babylonians, who took over from the Assyrians. Think of, you know, the communist USSR in their heyday, or America as a superpower. That's what the Persians were. They were the superpowers of that time. And the Jews were in this period called the exilic period, the period when they were in exile. So they had been captured from their homeland, which is you know, Israel as we know it now, um, and then taken away into captivity. It first started actually with the Assyrians about 780 BC. But the actual exodus or the movement into exile took place around 580 BD with the Assyrians. And both the, sorry, with the Babylonians. Both the Babylonians and the Assyrians had a different way of treating their people in captive. They took them away from their land to make them uncomfortable and they were captive prisoners and so on. But the Persians were different. They did the exact opposite. 
they, they allowed these captives, or people they have captured, to go back to their lands. And the very first act of Cyrus the Great, the first Persian king, was to allow the Jews to head back to their, to their native land. And of course, you know, there was this first movement of people, about 40,000 people, uh, and then they started rebuilding the temple first, and later on they rebuilt the city and the walls of Jerusalem. And that was, in between was Esther. So, you see, Esther, Esther played a significant role in the history of the Jewish people. If it wasn't for Esther, who knows, the, the walls of the city may not have been rebuilt. Jerusalem may not have been rebuilt. It was her son, Artaxerxes, who allowed this to happen. If it wasn't for Esther, we'll know shortly, as I keep going on, uh, the Jews might have been annihilated, completely executed. Because you must remember that the Persian kingdom was a really large kingdom. I'll, I'll show you that map there. It extended all the way from India, the dark green um, boundaries, right up to midway of, of Egypt. So it encompassed all of um, Israel, so to speak. So if they wanted to execute the Jews, they could. But Esther saved them. We'll move back a little bit. Susa is the capital. It was the winter capital. And that's the current remains of the of the capital uh, on the lowest picture and on top is just a depiction of what it would have looked like. It was glorious. There were acres of palaces and you know, royal property and Esther lived in one of these. Susa was the same place where Daniel had his dreams with the Babylonians. So Esther plays a significant part. If it wasn't for Esther, if she had not saved the Jews, 500 years later, our savior wouldn't have come to the world. So she paved a way for our savior as well. Anyway, we move on to this big superpower, the Persian kingdom, and the king at this time was Xerxes. Xerxes was a powerful man, and as the, as the book starts, there's this big banquet. The banquet lasts six months. Six months of partying, of feasting, of good times. Just imagine that, nonstop, six months. But there was a purpose behind the banquet. These banquets were held to um, prepare for battle. They were planning their battle as they wanted to invade Greece shortly after, after those six months. It was also a time when the king would display his wealth and display the fact that he had the resources to take his country into battle because battle was a time of loss for most countries. At this time, displaying everything else, he wanted to display his wife, Vashti. And so he sends his messengers to her and asks her to come to his palace. You see, they have different palaces and, you know, parade herself in front of the nobles and all the ministers. But Vashti, she said, no, nah, I'm not coming. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. She wasn't having a bar of it. So um, he gathers his ministers and close people around him and says, this is what Vashti is saying, what do I do? Um, they say, this is not a good precedent. You know, if your wife, the first lady, is disobeying you, then all the wives in the country are going to disobey their husbands. This is not good for the menfolk. And of course, in those days, the men were you know, in power. Um, so what do they do? They depose her. She's not queen anymore. They throw her out of the palace. We don't hear of Vashti anymore. Pretty rude, isn't it? Um, therein comes our first lesson. You know, relationships between men and women can never be forced by a law. 
It has to come out of mutual respect and love for each other. Because we're all created in God's image. And we cannot force obedience or force love or force respect. So we'll move on into our story. I try to, I've tried to make this a bit simplistic for the children here, so I hope it is interesting, but I hope it's interesting with the adults as well. The next person we come into contact with is Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was a Jew. Now, although the Persians allowed the Jews to head back to the native land, many of them stayed where they were. Probably they had established businesses, and they were just very comfortable where they were and didn't want to move. So Mordecai was one of these Jews who stayed here. He was an interesting man. He had challenges in his life, which he converted into opportunities. And he made full use of this. It's mentioned that Esther's parents died when she was very young. And Mordecai was her cousin. He took it upon himself. He took this challenge. It wasn't easy to bring up a little girl, but he did. And he brought her up as his child. And he was her parent. Um, we move on. The king returns from battle, and um, he suddenly realizes, hey, I don't have a wife. Uh, I don't have a queen. So what do I do? He gets his ministers around him again, and they have this grand old beauty pageant. They go to all the territories, the counties, the states of the country, and they choose all the pretty girls, and they're all gathered up to go into this palace at Susa. Esther gets chosen as well. We don't know how, but I suspect Mordecai being her guardian and her advisor would have said, why don't you go and try out for this? She gets chosen. You see, Esther was brought up by Mordecai. She was brought up by the Jewish community. But she's probably a very capable girl. It, said, it is said of her that she was lovely in form and features. So yes, she was beautiful, but she was also probably an intelligent lady, young lady. And what happens next is these ladies are all gathered together, and then they go through a period of 12 months of beauty treatment. Imagine 12 months of manicures, pedis, facials, the works. Ladies, it's great, isn't it? 12 months, so six months of treatment with the oil of myrrh, and six months with treatment of, with perfumes and cosmetics. And only then were they allowed to go and see the king. So the ladies go through this 12-month period, and then they all go and see the king one after the other. And Esther goes, and he falls in love with her, head over heels, and he says, you're going to be my queen. This little Jewish girl, ordinary Jewish girl, is now the queen of this superpower in the world. But let's step back a little bit and see what this means for Esther. Did she really want to be queen? Did she understand what it meant to be queen at the age of 14 or 15? She must have heard about this king Xerxes. Vashti just said, I couldn't come. She might have had a headache, or she might have fallen down and might have been limping. She couldn't come and parade herself. But he threw her out. She would have been scared of this man. Um, but she was told by Mordecai, go and try out. She obeyed him. You see, um, there are situations in our lives when we don't understand what's going on. We don't know why we are where we are. But God has a plan for us, and it's up to us to obey. 
He's got a plan for each one of us. And although we don't agree with it or we don't understand it, we just do what is right in his sight. We, we move back into the story. Esther is queen, queen of the superpower country. And as I mentioned, she made it possible, possibly, for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the city through her son and his cupbearer, Nehemiah, this artist's cupbearer. But at the same time, Mordecai had instructed Esther not to reveal her identity as a Jew. She said, don't tell the king or anyone that you're a Jew. In spite of the Jews being given great freedom, in spite of the Jews being allowed to freely go back to their country. And he continues, Mordecai continues to advise her through her queenship. There's a lesson here for us as well. What do we identify us as? Or who do we identify ourselves as? Are we, do we identify ourselves as Christians, children of God? While we need to be bold to declare ourselves as God's people, there are times where the best strategy is to keep quiet until such time that it's time for ourselves to be heard, especially with people in authority. But at the same time, we can always let no people know the difference in the way we behave, in the way we act with our friends, in the way we react to situations. We get back to the story. Mordecai is, uh, as I said, I didn't mention this before, he's actually a minister of some sort. I suspect the, the Persian kings, you know, say they had the Jews, they allowed a few Jews to be ministers, maybe to manage their own affairs. So he was a minister, and he was sitting at the palace gates or the doors, and he overheard a conspiracy to kill the king. So he promptly feeds this back to the king via Esther, and the king is saved. The people who were planning to kill him were executed. But Mordecai does not hear back from the king. He doesn't get his reward. Another lesson for us, we often think that we've done something good in school or, you know, at play or at work, and we think we deserve a reward then and there. But that's our timing. God's timing is different. His timing is divine. And when, the, when our reward comes from him, that will be just the right moment, much better than when we expected it. We come across another person, Haman. While all this is happening, Haman is a minister in the king's um, courtyard, and he rises rapidly in the ranks, so much so that he is the second in command to the king. Whatever he wants gets done. He just has to say the word. Mordecai, more than happy to bow down to the king, refuses to bow down to Haman. And there's a reason for that. You see, Mordecai is a Jew, Whereas Haman comes from a, from a line of people called the Amalekites, from King Agag. And it's written in Deuteronomy 25, God commands Israel to blot out the memory of the Amalekites from heaven. So there's a chronic enmity between the Amalekites and the Jews. Mordecai knows that. So does Haman. And therefore Mordecai does not stoop down and bow to this man because that is what God has commanded him to do. Another lesson for us. Mordecai's determination comes from his faith in God. He did not do what was the safe thing to do. He did what was the right thing to do. In our lives, we need to remember that 
um, there are several instances where we're given options. Do we do the safe thing and be with the popular children or people, or do we do the right thing and we're in the minority? To obey God is more important than to obey people. There's an inscription on a, on a bust of, a, of a, the Viceroy in England, Westminster Abbey, Lord Lawrence, and it's written, the inscription says, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. That's what we should aim to do. So coming back, Haman hates the Jews as well, and uh, he hates the fact that this man is not bowing down for, to him. Haman's a proud man. He's an egoistic man. Prestige is everything for him, but this man's not bowing down. So he says, I'm going to kill this man. Now, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to kill all the Jews. And he just tells the king, there's a group of people who are causing trouble in your kingdom. I need to execute them. And the king says, right, go ahead. And he issues a decree, a law, that all the Jews are to be executed. And that's that. That's planned to happen. But when does this happen? So they cast lots and choose when this is going to happen. And it so happens that this, the lot falls upon the 11th or 12th month, almost one year after the law is issued, is the time for the execution of the Jews. One year. God's working again. He gives Esther and the Jews enough time to try and save themselves. Once the law is passed, the Jews go into mourning, there's crying, there's wailing, gnashing of teeth and tearing of clothes, and they put on sackcloths, and Mordecai does this as well. So he's at the palace gates, putting on these sackcloths, you know, like dirty clothes, and just crying. And Esther hears about this, and she sends her servants to, to Mordecai, who's her parent, so to speak, and says, why are you crying? Put on some good clothes. He says, no, I'm not putting on any good clothes. I'm going to keep crying because we are all going to die soon. And he sends the decree, the law, back to Esther so she knows what's going on. At the same time, he tells her that this is the time, Esther, for you to step in and do something about it. There's a story of a famous organist in, um, a few centuries ago in England playing this beautiful music piece in church. And in those days, there was no electricity. So when the pipe organ was played, someone had to press the bellows by hand to get the music through. And the organist was playing away, and everyone was enjoying the music. And suddenly, from around the corner, this little boy pops his head and says, we're doing great, aren't we? And the organist replies, what do you mean, we? And the music goes on. Suddenly, there's pin drop silence in the church. And the organist is trying to press the keys harder and the pedals harder, no noise. And the boy pops his head around and says, do you know what I mean by we now? <laughs> so a team effort. Esther is a team player. Yes, she's the queen of the superpower country, but she didn't let it get to her head. She remembered where she came from. She remembered her roots. She remembered that she was a simple Jewish girl. And when Mordecai asks her and tells her that her whole community is going to be annihilated or executed, she realizes that something has to be done. At the same time, we think of the Jews as well. You see, we don't know what really happened when Esther was brought up, but I suspect it was a close-knit community. When you're in exile under 
an overpowering country, you tend to stick close to people you know. So they're a close-knit community. They probably brought up Esther. They probably gave her her values in life. When they saw her being queen, made the queen of the superpower, they didn't go to her and ask her for favors. Can I get this bank loan? Can I build property here or you know, this, that, and everything? They kept quiet. They were happy in her splendor and in her reign as queen. So they were a team as well. There's now time for Esther to step up for her team. But fear was what Esther faced when she was told what she was, when Mordecai asked her to do this. She had fear in her heart. You see, in those days, the king saw his wives one time, maybe two times if you're lucky. Esther probably got a few more visits with the king. It's said that she last saw the king 30 days prior to this occurrence. And she's been now queen for five years, so the novelty of having this beautiful young Jewish, or he didn't know she was Jewish, but beautiful young girl as queen has died out. So Esther is scared to approach the king. It was also said that if anyone approaches the king unannounced, they're going to be executed. Off with his head, or her head, if you're going to say. So she was scared. She was scared. She'd heard about what this king did to Vashti, and if she went unannounced, he could easily kill her. That's a picture I, I found on the internet of the palaces, and that area in green there was the queen's palace, or the palace, the harem of Xerxes, and this area here is his palace. This is obviously highly miniaturized, but you can imagine she just can't just rock up, or he's not in the next door, and she can't just say, hey, Xerxes, you know, stop troubling my people. She had to, it was a big process. Um, so she was scared. We talk about fear. Has fear ever paralyzed you? Have you ever been afraid of making a decision that you can't make a decision at all because of the consequences? It has been said that courage is not the absence of fear. It's the mastery of it. And the Bible adds another important factor in the definition of courage, trust and faith in God. Our normal reaction, human reaction, is to fear something when we're faced with it. But to acknowledge that we lack courage is the first step in overcoming it. We must not allow fear to paralyze us. What a decision for a young woman. She was probably only 19 or 20 by then. Death seems certain, whether she didn't do anything about it or if she did. Mordecai goes on to remind her that she cannot eventually hide her identity. He also tells her that you're probably put in that position as a queen for this very day and for this very purpose. She has to step up, and Esther does. She decides to approach the king, and she says these words, if I perish, I perish. She probably realizes she's going to die one way or the other. And so she gathers the courage, and she goes. But before that, she does one thing. She tells Mordecai, pray for me. Tell all our Jewish people to pray for me and fast for me. She doesn't go alone. She's got God on her side and that confidence, and she's got her people, her community with her. And she makes her way to the palace. The lesson for us is we all have purposes in this world, 
and daunting as it may be, go ahead with faith in God. Pray, get your family to pray, but get your church family to pray. Your church is your family. And prayer is a strong tool that we have with us. She goes and meets the king. One thing I liked about this was that Esther didn't show any signs of crying. Everyone else was crying. Esther didn't cry. It never says Esther cried. And I've had a lot of conversations with my girls, Elsa, when I say, don't cry. <laughs> there's always a solution. Sometimes you have to cry, of course. But there's usually a solution. Esther never cried. I found that really brave of her. She approaches the king, and he doesn't execute her. He, he, lends, he puts the sep, his golden scepter towards her, which means that he pardons her for coming unannounced. And he tells her, what do you want, um, Queen Esther? And uh, she tells him that, um, I want you and Haman to come for this dinner, this fancy banquet I'm pre preparing this evening. And so they go. Um, go for this banquet. In the meanwhile, Mordecai continues to get under Haman's skin. He doesn't bow down to her, and he gets more and more infuriated, and he tells his wife and his close friends, this man is not bowing down to me. What do I do? They said, why don't you build this tall gallows and prepare it to hang him from that? And he was happy. Yes, I've got a plan. I'm going to hang this man for his insubordination to me. Righty-ho, he's happy. They've had their banquet. The king asks the queen, what did you want of me? She says, come back tomorrow, I'll tell you. And so he says, okay. That night, the king can't sleep. So he's walking around the palace, and um, he tells his guards or his ministers, bring me the chronicles, the history books to read. And he reads that there was a time when this man called Mordecai saved his life because he uncovered this assassination plot. And he realizes, have I rewarded this man? And the answer is no. He says, jeepers, I've got to reward him now. So he calls Mordecai and, uh, Haman and says, we need to reward him. How ironic. You know, he gets the same man who hates Mordecai to put on these cloaks and you know, rings and crowns and whatnot. That's irony, isn't it? Anyway, so he, Mordecai gets rewarded. And the king and Haman go back for the second banquet, and Esther reveals what's really on her heart, and she says, my people have been in captivity for hundreds of years. They've suffered, they've been tortured, and now there's someone who's trying to tr trouble them even further, so much so they're going to kill all of us. She reveals that she's a Jew now, and the king is furious with the person who's trying to um, kill the Jews and the queen's people. And he says, who is this man? And she says, it's, it's uh, Haman. The king walks out of the balcony, he's, he's boiling. And when he comes back, by that time, Haman's on his knees next to Esther, pleading for his life. But the king sees it differently. He thinks he's attacking her already. Immediately, Haman's thrown out and executed in the very same gallows that he made for Mordecai. Irony all over again. There are lessons we learn from Haman's life. It's filled with hatred. Never a good thing to have hatred in your heart. He was a proud man. Power was everything for him. 
and he fell into the very pit that he was digging for others, as it says in Proverbs. God has an amazing record of making evil plans backfire. The Jews are jubilant, they are saved, but there's still a little problem, little hitch. Once a law is passed by the king, it cannot be reversed, so they have to pass another law which then says that the Jews are able to defend themselves against anyone who's trying to execute them. And so the Jews have this bit of a battle and they protect themselves and a few 10,000 people die and so on and so forth, but the Jews are safe. You see, God uses ordinary people and ordinary situations to accomplish his plans. God works through your lives, children, adults, teenagers, young people, through ordinary situations to accomplish his plans. In the book of Esther, there are no miracles. There's no God did this. There's no mention of God at all. But he was working behind the scenes right throughout. And his people were saved through a series of improbable events. Ordinary people, improbable events. That's how God works in our lives. We all lead ordinary lives. But he accomplishes his plan through our ordinary lives. There's something called God's providence. God's providence describes the way, the same thing, the way God uses everyday events to accomplish his purposes in this world. We need to see how God's working in our lives. And it's easier said than done. But think about things that almost didn't happen. Suppose you almost didn't go to the school you were going to. Or suppose you almost never became friends with your best friend. But you did, and life changed. The story of Esther teaches us to see how God works in the everyday, ordinary parts of our lives. The challenge is to recognize what God's doing in our lives. The small decisions that we have made that have changed our lives. God is always setting up our lives. Our lives are not random. We are not random. So we need to recognize what's God, what God has done in our lives. Don't go through life saying, I wish God was here. I wish God could speak to me. I wish God is, I can hear God. God is here. He is with you all the time. But although it may be difficult to hear or see what he's doing, we just need to step back, look at our past, and we will see it. Because God's purpose for each one of us is to glorify him and to glorify him alone. He's given each one of us talents or gifts to do that. We may not see that. It's like a gift that's wrapped up with this wrapping paper and you don't know what's inside it. We don't know what our talent is. We don't know what our gift is. But we go on through our mundane, everyday lives from day to day. While we do this, it is our duty to walk with God day by day, obeying his word, as he prepares us for a day when, he open, when we can open that gift and realize what our talent is. In God's perfect time, he will allow the wrapping of the gift to be opened, to come off, and we can see what our real talent is. Whether we know today that God has given us this gift, whether we know today what our gift is, what our talent is, or not, we are to lead a life that is faithful and obedient to God. 
because although we may not feel it, although we may feel that we don't have a purpose in this world, we're not useful to God, we are. God has a purpose in our lives. We are useful to God. He sees what is happening in our lives. He sees what we do, how we interact. And he wants us to be influential in other people's lives. He wants us to influence our brothers and sisters. He wants us to influence our teammates on our footy team or our ballet team or our lacrosse team. He wants us to influence everyone around. Esther didn't realize for a very long time what her purpose in life was. But when she did, she stepped up to the plate. She didn't disappoint. She used her life to influence others around her. And she made a difference. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the story of Esther, and for all the little ordinary everyday events in ordinary people like us that gives us faith that you will use us and our talents, whether we see it today or not, to influence the lives of people around us just for one purpose, to glorify you. Make us worthy of you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.